So I think we got a few guest members of our choir this morning. So very grateful for you guys and uh, grateful for you, Kirk, and we're so very grateful. So um, uh, I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> Maybe I should just say amen and we'll just go home. How does that sound? Yeah, I'm seeing too many excited faces out there. Okay. No, it uh, doesn't work that way. Um, we are now in the fifth of the series in Joshua, and uh, if uh, you, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1 there, and it's going to be rather long, so uh, when I invite you to stand, if you'd like to remain seated, that's fine, I understand. But uh, we're also then going to jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12, so you might want to have your finger there, or your digital finger, whatever it is you might have. So, if, uh, if you are able, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Joshua chapter 5. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Then to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. Peter writes, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, as we come now to the time of 
spending time in your word, focusing very closely on it. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts and our minds that your word and your Holy Spirit would have the desired effect that you desire, Lord. Work in us, we pray. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I, uh, I heard the story of an older couple who, who had a son, who, an older son, who was still living with them. And the parents were a little worried, and as the son was still unable to decide about his future career. I don't know how many of you have that trouble, but we have had that. So they decided to do a small test. They took a $100 bill, a bottle, a bo- I'm sorry, a Bible, and a bottle of whiskey, and put them on the front hall table. Then they hid, pretending they weren't at home. This was, this was the father's plan. If our son takes the money, he'll be a businessman. If he takes the Bible, he'll be a pastor. But if he takes the bottle of whiskey, I'm afraid our son will be a drunkard. So the parents hid in a nearby closet and waited nervously. Peeping from the keyhole, they saw their son arrive. The the son saw the note that they had left. Then he took the $100 bill, looked at it against the light, and slid it into his pocket. After that, he took the Bible, flicked through it, and took that too. Finally, he grabbed the bottle, opened it, took an appreciative whiff to be assured of its quality, and then he left for his room, taking all three items. The father slapped his forehead and said, I can't believe it. It's even worse than I could have ever imagined. Our son is going to be a politician. Now, if you're a parent like me, you're always looking for signs of what your child will be like when they become adults, right? And this becomes part of the theme of our passage today. So let's let's set the stage. The Israelites have this great promise of God for a land of their own, a promised land, which God is now giving to them centuries after the initial promise was made to Abraham. See, it's a promise that goes way back to when God first covenanted with Abraham. You might remember that from Genesis. It was a very solemn covenant. See, in the Hebrew, you don't make a covenant. So that's how we translate it. Rather, and this is point one on your outline, for those of you who like to keep notes, you'll find that in the insert in your bulletin. In in Hebrew... You don't make a covenant, you literally cut a covenant. And it comes from what God did with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. When when God had Abraham cut an animal in half and they walked through it together. See, God back then was emphatically telling Abraham that a covenant promise is a life and death promise. To be in a covenant relationship with a holy God is of life and death seriousness. And it's sealed with a very serious outward sign, the sign of circumcision. See, as new covenant believers, it's vital for us to understand the seriousness of what it is that we are about. 
To be in covenant relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ is to understand the life and death seriousness of what it is that we have received and what it is that we are communicating to others. It's about life and life everlasting. For those not within the new covenant, there is eternal death, hell and damnation, living under the dominion of sin and death, both now and through eternity. Now, we're not told precisely why these young men in our passage weren't circumcised while they were exiles, but we're given hints. We're reminded of the unfaithfulness and unbelief of the generation who were circumcised outwardly. Do you see that here in this passage? And we're to be very concerned for the generation that is uncircumcised, especially if you're a Hebrew and you remember what God tells Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. Let me read that for you beginning at verse 9. You're welcome to join with me if you like, Genesis 17, 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Seen in light of what we know here from Genesis 17, there is really great irony dripping from the passage that we just read. The adult men had been circumcised, yet we're told that they didn't listen. They didn't heed the voice of Yahweh. So they were forced to wander until they were no more. They didn't receive the promise. By contrast, their children, were told, were uncircumcised. And yet, Yahweh, we're told, raised them up, as we read in verse 7 of our passage. See, there is a strong warning here from God for God's people. And we need to pay very close attention to it. And it's, by the way, point two on your outline. You can have all the outward marks of God's people. You can have all the religious trappings of the faith, but still have, still, I'm sorry, still lack having a covenant relationship with God. So you can go to church regularly. You can pray before meals. You can be baptized. You can share in communion regularly. You can have all the outward signs of being part of the bride of Christ, but you can still lack the covenant relationship with God. You can be cut off. You can receive the sacraments and have no faith. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5. through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. 
They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Here's the point. You can experience the exodus and all the power of God. You can eat the manna from the hand of God. You can drink the water from the rock and still remain in unbelief. You can be a member of Christ's church but not be in covenant relationship with the head of the church. You can come and enjoy the worship service regularly. You can raise your hands and worship. You can feel the worship. You can pray, but still be far from God. See, I don't want you to be deceived. And I don't want you to wait any longer if you have even a small doubt about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to, to encourage you to come and pray with me or pray with one of our prayer team today. There's another important aspect to this remarkable event that we can see in a couple of different places here. First, here's, the, here's one of the facts that I don't want you to miss. The Israelites were being led by God to enter into the promised land and conquer the people there. Yet one of the first things that God calls on them to do, do you see this? Is to disable all their fighting men for several days. Sounds like a pretty good strategy, right? They'd be sitting ducks, if you will, if the enemy were allowed by God to know what was going on. They wouldn't be able to fight. Then we're told that they no longer received manna, but now would be receiving their food from the promised land directly. So does that mean that God would no longer be providing? See, this whole point is to once again highlight that all of this is God's provision. It's not that they will be conquering these lands by their own might, that it is God that is giving it to them. It is He that is providing. And while extraordinary times, wandering in the desert, required extraordinary provision, manna directly from heaven, now that they have the land that God is giving them, it is still ultimately God who is providing. Maybe not as directly, but it's still God's doing. Now, this uh, reminded me of a story that uh, Clarence McCartney tells about Dr. John Witherspoon, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and president of the then College of New Jersey. He lived a couple miles from the college at Rocky Hill and drove horse and rig each day to his office at college. One of his neighbors burst into his office one day and said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. Witherspoon thought for a moment and then replied, why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven that road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away. My buggy never was smashed. I was never heart hurt. God is always working. See, we often wonder where God is when life gets more difficult. 
yet we rarely thank him for all the moment-by-moment provisions that we have from his hands. I'd like to now tie this together with this chapter that we see in 1 Peter, so if you can turn there with me. I think this is tied together by thinking about our identity in Christ. See, all of uh, this next section of, uh, of this passage in Joshua chapter 5 is really all founded in the term Gilgal, which is uh, rolling the stone or rolling away the reproach of Egypt from you. And we saw this briefly last week. See, you see the Israelites had come to identify themselves with the reproach and the shame of Egypt. Literally, they were mocked, the mocked ones of Egypt, having been enslaved there for hundreds of years and were led there from there by God and were now forced by God to wander in the desert. And that's how they came to think of themselves. But now they have once again received God's mercy and have received the renewal of the covenant as they're about to receive the promised land. And God had put his identifying sign upon them. God had rolled back the reproach and renewed the covenant. That's what's going on here. He had embraced them, marked them once again in his covenant, and sealed that with a Passover, do you see here? Reminding them that he had redeemed them, which ultimately was a sign looking forward to the ultimate redemption in Christ Jesus, our ultimate Passover lamb. You know, some time ago, I read the true story of a woman who explained that her favorite spot at the local zoo was the house of night, where nocturnal creatures crawled and flew about, as she wrote. And she said, one very bright day, I stepped into the exhibit and was plunged into total darkness. Almost immediately, a small hand grabbed mine. And who do you belong to, she asked. The little boy's voice spoke in the darkness. Well, I'm yours till the lights come on. See, we too need to embrace God's mark and seal upon our lives, the one who holds our hand until the final lights come on. See, your identity and mine are all tied into this. Most of us, if we've been Christians for a while, might have come, start to think of ourselves as Christians, but let me suggest that many of us don't live it out as a reality. See, if I were to characterize many of the Christians that I know, I'd identify us more as good Americans, or good family men and women, or good businessmen and women, or good educators, or good children, or good grandchildren. And while those things are all good, they are biblically not to be our primary identity. See, however else we identify ourselves, our overwhelming identity is in Christ if we have trusted him as our Lord and Savior. As Jesus put it, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. See, the way Jesus characterizes the issue is that our primary covenant relationship with him is to be so overwhelming that even our great love for our families and for ourselves 
is as hate in comparison. See, God is very serious about his relationship with us, deadly serious. Peter tells us that in these verses who we are in Christ, what our primary identity is in Christ. You see this here with me? First, you are chosen people. God chose you. He placed his favor upon you. He called you out. And this is point three on your outline. You're not here accidentally. You have been chosen by God. You're also part of the royal priesthood. See, priests had access to God, and so do you. And this is point four. You have direct access to God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And point five is you have a calling on your life as part of a royal priesthood to minister to the world and others by your very life and words revealing God's redeeming love to others. You're a part of a holy nation as well. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I were once in great darkness, and we have been called out of that darkness into his wonderful light. See, we're not part of an ordinary nation, but a holy nation. And this is point six on your outline. We are not primarily Americans. We are citizens of God's holy nation. And as part of that holy nation, we have a holy calling to declare his praises, to declare his praises and to give him thanks always for his providential daily working in our lives, for his daily provisions, to live with circumcised hearts, daily showing the signs of God's miraculous work in our lives wherever we go. He says, but once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I I like to introduce myself this way from time to time. Who am I? Well, I'm the one who has received mercy. Have you ever tried that with somebody? Give it a try. Hi, my name's Adel. And once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy. It often... uh, gets you a lot of questions. I like to greet people that way from time to time. It does prompt lots of discussion with people. And so, who are the signs? What are the signs of who we are? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's not circumcision, but something much more radical. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And this is point seven on your outline. The outward signs of our true identity in Christ is a life that pleases God. A life that is so well lived with joy and the love of Jesus on our lips that many might accuse us of doing wrong, but ultimately leads to many coming to the place where they glorify God. See, I'm yours till the lights come on. I'll belong to you till then. Who do you belong to you? 
Do you belong to God or do you belong to the world, to sin and the devil? The children are dressed and ready for school, but there's no food for them to eat. The house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. So George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food, and then he waited. See, George knew God would provide food for his children as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning, so I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed, so he asked George if he, would, if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 children. See, George Mueller wasn't always a person of such great faith and good character. In fact, as a young boy growing up in Germany in the early 1800s, he often stole from his dad. One time, he was caught by police and put in jail. As a college student, George loved going to the bars and drinking and gambling and being the life of the party. He also loved making fun of people, especially Christians. One day, a friend invited George to go to an off-campus Bible study. He went only because he wanted to make fun of the Christians later. But to his surprise, he liked the Bible study. For the first time, he saw people who really knew and loved God. He attended each evening, and before the end of the week, he knelt at his bed and asked God to forgive him of his sins. George's friends saw a change in him immediately. He no longer went to bars or made fun of people. He spent more time reading his Bible, talking about God, and going to church. When George told his father that he decided to become a missionary, his father became quite upset. He wanted George to have a high-paying job and not just be a poor missionary. He told George that he wouldn't give him any more money for school. George knew he had to do what God was calling him to do, even if his dad didn't support him. After that, George pastored a church for some time, but knew God had something else planned for him. Each day, as George walked the streets, he saw children everywhere who had no mom or dad. They lived on the streets or in state-run poorhouses, as they did in that day, and they were often treated very badly. So George felt that God calling him to open an orphanage and take care of those children. George prayed, asking God to provide a building, people to oversee it, furniture, and money for food and clothing. God answered his prayers. The needs of the orphanage were met every day. Sometimes a wealthy person would send a large amount of money or a child would give a small amount received as a gift for doing chores. Many times food supplies or money came at the last minute, but God always provided without George telling anybody about his needs. He just prayed and waited on God. More than 10,000 children lived in the orphanage over the years. And when each child became old enough to live on his own, George would pray with him, 
put a Bible in his right hand and a coin in his left. He explained to that young person that if he held on to what was in his right hand, God would always make sure that there was something in his left hand as well. George Mueller was asked, what is the secret of your service to God? And his response was this. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. Died to the world, its approval and censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved only to God. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, we, we are reminded today that we serve a faithful God. You are always faithful. You are always faithful to your promises. You are faithful to your calling upon each one of us. You are faithful. And so, Lord, as we, as we might face changes, as we might face challenges, we look and depend only upon you. We trust you. We seek you. We don't trust all the wonderful techniques and models that might help. We trust you. We seek to serve you. We seek to follow wherever you have. Lord, we seek you for the pastor that this church is calling. We seek you for our search committee as they do their work. Lord, we seek you in your desires for our lives and for our church. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing, abundant love that you have shed upon each one of us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.